This morning we're going to uh, consider chapters 20 through 27 of Isaiah. So we're not going to be able to uh, read all of that text, of course. You'll be responsible to work through it on your own. I'm just going to draw your attention to a few uh, points in it that I think are valuable. Um, So before we uh, do that, uh, let's pray. So, Father, this is uh, your day, and uh, we commit ourselves to you in it and ask that you will bless us by your Spirit. We uh, recognize, Lord, that you've just sung that Jesus is uh, everything to us, that he is our life, and we uh, commit ourselves to you through him. We trust him. We put our faith in Him. We believe in His promises and in His character, in His guiding in our lives. And we ask that uh, He will strengthen us today uh, to be able to benefit from Your Word. This is Your Word. It is not ours. Your Spirit is our teacher. Uh, No human being can ever teach us properly. No human being can ever put Your Word deep into our hearts and cultivate it and nourish it and make it fruitful and prune it. Only you can do that. And so we look to you uh, this morning to be our teacher. We look to you to be uh, the gardener who produces fruit in our lives. Lord, for those who are not here uh, this morning for a variety of reasons, we just pray that you will minister to them where they are, that you will draw them close to yourself. If they are lonely, then comfort them with your presence. If they are physically sick, then I pray that you will uh, give them healing. And if there are those in our midst who are sick and who are not going to be healed, we pray that you will give them uh, transcendent rest in yourself and that you'll even work to sanctify them and draw them closer to yourself, uh, not exempting them from Uh, the difficulties and trials that are common to us all, but giving them the strength to endure and to persevere and to persist. So, Lord, this morning, uh, whether we gather with hearts filled with joy or or whether we gather with hearts filled with pain, I pray that your Spirit will minister to each and every one of us through your Word, uh, for that is how you teach us and touch us. Do so for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, as, uh, as I mentioned, hoping to cover uh, chapters 20 through 27, and that section is going to be uh, too long to uh, read large passages. You'll have to work through it on your own. Chapters 20 through 23 uh, continue on with themes of judgments on particular nations. We've already seen a fair bit of this so far in Isaiah. We talked about this a fair bit uh, last week, how God brings all the nations of the world uh, under His judgment for a variety of reasons. And one of the things that I think is very important to understand about this, that we talked a little bit about last week, is that God not only uh, judges the nations, but the prophet when he sees the judgment released against the nations, has very deep and poignant 
emotional responses and reactions to it. In a way which beggars imagination in how we normally try to cultivate a Western religious experience in church. That is, we are often about the cultivation of happy or positive emotions. And then that becomes the goal. The goal becomes make sure everyone feels good while they're here and send them out with a little pep in their step, a little bit happier than they were when they came in. And that's all reasonable at one level, provided it's not flippant and shallow and superficial. That is, provided the joy sometimes is hard won because legitimately hard fought for. God will get you there, but, but the pathway there isn't always sunny. And that's just reality. So one of the things that, that's important, that's a corrective about Isaiah, which is sort of the gospel in the Old Testament. There, there's lots of joy. There's lots of rejoicing. In fact, you hit, hit chapter 40, and you have this massive shift into comfort and, and joy and future and hope and promise and all of the rest. But if you're thoughtful, what does it look like to the world, to us, and to God for the world to be so wicked, a nation so rebellious, and there'd be so much chaos and suffering and strife because of human moral agency, that God needs to judge nation after nation after nation after nation. What does that feel like to be aligned with the heart of God and to see that? The reality is, in a lot of church history, and even in a lot of conversations today, you will get this sort of schadenfreude of perverse pleasure in the suffering of others, provided it's not us. This usually flashes out before we control it when we hear of bad things that happen to people we don't really like, and we immediately feel a little taste of satisfaction that they're getting what they deserve. Or, to spiritualize it very quickly, to sort of think, well, I knew that they struggled with whatever, pride. God's God's humbling them. A little bit of satisfaction in it. A little bit of satisfaction when things don't go right for other people. A little bit of perverse glee, which is why Paul will tell us, and, and, and Paul quoting the Old Testament, leave room for the vengeance of God. When, when your enemy is suffering, do not rejoice. Why does he have to say that? Because our natural response is we want people to suffer. We want mercy and grace. We want other people to experience justice. The prophet, Isaiah, when he hears about the destruction that's coming upon Babylon in chapter 21, says this in verse 3, at this, my body is racked with pain. Pain sees me like those of a woman in labor. 
I am staggered by what I hear. I am bewildered by what I see. My heart falters. Fear makes me tremble. The twilight I longed for has become a horror to me. This is Isaiah seeing a vision in the future of the arch persecutors of his people being destroyed. And Isaiah says, when I think about their destruction, there's the destruction of my enemies, my heart falters, I tremble, he's physically ill, fear makes me tremble, I long for the day to be over, I just want it to be night, but when it's twilight, I find that I'm submerged in horror. This is his response to the destruction of his enemies. No schadenfreude, no perverse glee. No, well, they had it coming to them. It's about time God brought them down a peg. And this is one of the amazing things about this book, because in this book, as we've already seen, oh, there's lots of wrath. There's lots of anger. There's lots of judgment. But the paradox of it, the multifaceted nature of it, is that the God who brings wrath reveals his emotional disposition through the prophet. That is, it's the words of the prophet, but the words of the prophet are the words of God. And so what you see is you see a God who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That it's a painful necessity. If there isn't repentance, there will be judgment. Evil needs to be ended. But there's no glibness. There's no joy. There's brokenhearted sorrow. And you see this again in chapter 22, verse 4. This is about Jerusalem. So, so the, the prophet's heart falters and fear makes him tremble. His body is racked with pain. You can only see this, this person. This is a person who, who is physically convulsed. He cares so much about the lost. And then his own people, chapter 22, verse 4, Jerusalem. Therefore I said, turn away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to console me over the destruction of my people. In other words, the prophet, motivated by the Holy Spirit, sees a vision of a dying world. He sees a vision of his enemies dying. He sees a a vision of his people dying. And and, and he's moved to the point of being physically ill. And he's weeping bitterly. And and people are coming along. And and to give it the evangelical equivalent, this is an anachronism, I understand. But but they come along to sort of give the evangelical equivalent of, well, well, you know, Isaiah, you know, Romans 8.28, buck up. God moves in mysterious ways, Isaiah. It's okay. It's it's not us. Isaiah says, Don't don't console me. Don't don't bother consoling me. Let me weep. Because some things are worth weeping over. Isaiah's response is the right response. He's the prophet of God. In this case, he speaks. This is not like Jeremiah, sort of talking back a little bit. This is Isaiah actually entering into the spirit of the vision and the right emotional response to it 
as a follower of God. So when we talk about missions, for example, when we talk about the people around the world, the people groups who have never heard of Jesus, when we talk about, as you mentioned in Sunday school, 24,000 children a day dying from preventable causes, at some point it has to stop being information. And it has to be something which breaks your heart and motivates you to act. Or else we really just simply don't get it. Like, we, we, just, we just don't comprehend. There were a lot of people who heard Isaiah's words, but were never motivated to action. They, they, they understood what he was saying, but in terms of response, there was none. And so part of the question would be, frankly, when's the last time you were emotionally disturbed by the state of our world? When's the last time it really bothered you that there are people dying who've never heard the gospel? Like, like when's the last time that you, you actually lost a little bit of sleep over the state of the nations? It's a mark of being aligned with the promises and principles of God. You know, we, we sing that song, Break my heart by what breaks yours. Be careful what you sing and what you pray and what you wish for. Because here Isaiah finds his heart breaking for what breaks the heart of God. And it's a very deep and painful and bitter experience. Now, what you see also then is because of this, there are right and wrong responses. Chapter 22, verse 12 says, The Lord, the Lord Almighty called you on that day. So this is the Lord. The Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts. God Almighty is calling you to respond in a particular way. What, what's that way? The Lord, the Lord Almighty called you on that day to weep and to wail to tear out your hair and put on sackcloth. Sometimes God says, this is a command. This is God. This isn't a suggestion. This isn't, this isn't advice. This is God saying, look, you want to worship me in this context. You weep and wail. That's how you worship me. You, you put on sackcloth. You mourn. Because it's not okay that the whole world is going to be judged and destroyed. That should break your heart. So weep and wail, mourn. Now, at the risk of boosting ego, one does at some level have to applaud Rick Willis for taking to tear out your hair seriously. So that's a good thing. And Sam McCallum as well. And as I look at these mentors, I'm on, right on the way of doing that. Tear out your hair and put on sackcloth, weep and to wail. These are all cultural expressions. We don't do that literally today. But in our culture, there are forms of mourning and grief expression. That's what we ought to do. That is, it's not the form. It's not the literalization of these things. It's the heart disposition. Sometimes God calls you to weep and to wail. Have you ever been obedient to that call? As a Christian following God, 
Have you ever allowed yourself to weep over the brokenness and the despair and the pain of the nations? But, see, there is joy and revelry, slaughtering of cattle and killing of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, you say, for tomorrow we die. Paul will quote this in the New Testament, of course. The point here is that there's a time for mourning and there's a time for celebration. And there is a time when God calls you to mourn. And when God calls you to mourn, you better not throw a party. What could be more dissonant than God inviting you to a funeral and you come and start partying in the middle of the ceremony or the service? That's sort of the image here. God calls you, look, look at the vision. Look at what's going on. Weep, mourn, wail, repent, turn around, stop, see it. And all you can do is play on your phone. All you can do is amuse yourself. All you can do is party. All you can do is eat and drink for tomorrow you die. You don't care a bit about the lives of other people provided you can have some pleasure. That's the judgment on these people. Rather than entering into the spirit of Isaiah, they enter into a spirit of hedonism. They look out for themselves. They look out for their own pleasure. They don't really care a bit about what's going on around them. That's why they're judged. Now, Moving from the nations, chapters 24 through 27 are about the judgment of the entire earth. And it's almost like, it's almost like you get tired of the enumeration. And so God says, all right, look, instead of saying I'm going to judge this nation and that nation and this nation and that nation, I'm just going to tell you, I'm just going to judge the whole earth. The whole world is going to be destroyed. Sometimes called the, the little apocalypse. God basically blows up the entire world in these chapters. You know, that's sort of what he does. Uh, there's no point talking about Babylon and Assyria and Philistia and Moab. I'm just going to destroy the whole earth. And so in chapter 24, 17 times, he says, you know, the earth, the earth, the earth, the earth. The earth will be completely laid waste. The Lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. He'll ruin its face. Verse 2 in chapter 24 talks about social demographics. Everyone gets destroyed. Everything is absolutely ruined. Catastrophic judgment everywhere. And yet, a bombshell in the middle of this passage where the whole world is being blown up by God is in verses 14 through 16. They raise their voices, they shout for joy. Now, wait a minute. The whole earth is being blown up, and there are people shouting for joy. Why? This isn't the hedonism of let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. This is a shout of joy because from the west they acclaim the Lord's majesty. Therefore, in the east give glory to the Lord. Exalt the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, in the islands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we hear singing glory to the righteous one. Say, wait a minute. From the ends of the earth we hear singing glory. Glory to the righteous one from the ends of the earth, from the, from the west and the east, from the islands. The islands, of course, or the seacoast uh, are, are in, in Old Testament Hebrew, the way that you say the extremities of the earth, sort of the antipodes, the poles. See, God just destroyed the whole earth. The whole earth is destroyed, chapter 24. 
But there are people praising God from the ends of the earth. Glory to the righteous one. How does that happen? What is going on here? Somehow, again, God always embeds messages of hope and light in the darkest depths of despair. The whole earth is destroyed, and there are people praising God from the ends of the earth. And how do you hold those two things together? Well, at some level, I want to say I have absolutely no idea, except that it's true. God climactically and catastrophically judges everything and everyone. Everything's destroyed, and yet there are people all over, God, all over the world praising God. Both of those things are true together. And so, and so there's sorrow and joy. The prophet, his heart absolutely is destroyed over the destruction of the people. And then he turns and there's this, this little remnant. There's still this group. And all over the world, people are praising God from one end of the earth to the other. And, and, and the prophet says, oh, there, but there's joy there. There's hope there. There's light there. See, and depending on personality and, and, and training and experience, one of the things that we tend to do is we tend to try to live in one of those places. We don't tend to try to live in, in the dark and despair, but some of us just get sort of sucked into it continually. But God, God wants his people to live in both simultaneously sometimes. Because it's a matter of perspective. Is there a lot in our world today? And this is not rhetorical. Well, okay, it is rhetorical, so I don't know why I said that. Uh, think about it. Like, actually think about it. Don't, you don't need to respond, though. Is there a lot in our world today? Is there a lot in this room today that could legitimately break your heart into a million pieces? And the answer is Yes. Is there a lot in this world today? And is there a lot in this room today that would be enough to fill your heart with joy and thanksgiving forever? And the answer is yes. And there's no point denying either one of those polarities. They're both true. They're both true. There is an enormous amount of horror in the world that should break your heart, and there are people all over the world singing glory to the righteous one. There is shame, there is glory. There is sin, there is righteousness. There is cursing, there is praise. There is darkness, there is light. There is death, there is life. And that's the reality of living in this world. That's the reality of being a human being in this world. Glory from the ends of the earth we hear singing. Glory to the righteous. Can you imagine being the prophet after all of these chapters of judgment? You think it's tough to like sit here and get this. Uh, Can you imagine being the one who's, this is all mediated through, where God is stirring your heart. You have to proclaim these things. And you have to see these things with prophetic vision. And, and, and God gives you the heart that actually feels it. Oh, then what would it be like when, when prophetically you, 
you hear the strains of that singing, glory to the righteous one from all around the earth. After all the despair, after all the darkness, the lightness, the sweetness, the, the, the invigorating strength of that would have been incredible. Now, chapter 25, then, is a praise response. Sorry, chapter 26 is sort of a song of praise response to what God has done. Chapter 25 uh, is the prophet sort of processing this, what he's seen and committing himself to God. Notice what he says. This is the God who, who is holy, 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 the God who, who destroys all nations and the entire world. Lord, you are my God. It is a personal affirmation. Lord, you are my God, you and no other. I see your holiness. I see your acts. I see what you are doing. I claim relationally you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name for reason. In perfect faithfulness, You have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. God, I will praise you because you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago, things that I can't possibly imagine, things that I can't possibly understand, things which have to include these judgments and yet you have done wonderful things. This is all part of your plan. You are my God. What can I do but exalt you and praise your name, even though this vision is crippling to me, and I can't even be consoled? You have done wonderful things. You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner stronghold, the city no more. It will never be rebuilt. rebuilt. Therefore, Strong peoples will honor you. Sometimes strong peoples need to be broken before they'll come to God. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You, God, have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. From, for the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall and like the heat of the desert. God, you are my God. When the whole world is being blown up, where can you hide? When everything around you is giving way, when the foundations crumble, when everything you hoped on, every, when, when everything you feared is coming true, when everything is being lost... When all of the world, chapter 24, is being laid waste, where are you going to hide when your whole life, everything around you and the whole world is being laid waste? Where can you go? Well, everything is laid waste except God. And so the only place you can go is to God. And thank God, He's a refuge for the poor. He's a refuge for the needy and their distress. He's a shelter from the storm. Because if it's not God, there isn't one. And that's sort of the... the, the horrible pragmatic of it, 
You know, when you get in Peter, when Jesus teaches about, you know, teaches the crowd about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and all the crowd leaves, and Jesus says, well, what about you guys? Do you guys want to go too? And Peter says, I would love to know, I would absolutely love to know the inflection and the tone, Lord, to whom shall we go? Lord, who... I don't know if he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You're, you're the Messiah. We're going to follow you. Or if it was just sort of like, well, Lord, where, where else? Where are we going to go? We have no choice now. I have no idea what he was thinking or how he said it. But that's sort of where you get put. Lord, where are we going to go except you? Who are we going to follow except you? It's you or nothing, God. He's the shelter. You silence the uproar of foreigners as heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is stilled on this mountain. So you come to God as your shelter. You're poor and needy, the whole world, your whole life's been blown up. Your whole life's been reduced. Everything's been taken away. Everything. Probably all at once. And then you go to God, because where else are you going to go? You just need shelter from the storm. And God accepts you, then on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. And so you come to God, a refugee, because absolutely every single thing around you is gone. The whole world's been laid to waste. And you come to God, and, and he, he takes you to his holy mountain. Somewhat like the, the psyche myth. He takes you to his holy mountain. Then gives you all of, all of the best things. The richest food. The finest wine. He nourishes you. He cares for you. He comforts you clothes you, binds you up, heals you. Everything you could ever need is found only in that one place, only in that one person. He's the only one who can't be taken away. He's the only prop that can't be knocked out. And even when the whole world is destroyed, He will take you in. And He lavishes grace and love upon you. He's not stingy. He doesn't give you water and a crust of bread. He gives you the finest of what he has. The great royal king liberally feasting you from his stores. And then you know something reasonably interesting. He allows you to feast at his banqueting table. He allows you to experience his love. And then he says, I'd, I'd just like to, to make a toast. I'd like to make a speech. There, there's, there's just something I want to do. And so just, if you could just, just be quiet for a moment, just, just focus here. I, I have one more thing for you. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, 
the sheet that covers all nations, he will swallow up death forever. That's what he does. He gives you a feast. And then at the end of the feast, he himself eats death. He himself swallows death. As you watch, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, takes death itself and consumes it. The shroud that covers all nations is done. The world is destroyed. You come to God for shelter. He feasts you. Then he eats your death so that you will never need to die. Then the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Isaiah said, Let me weep, do not console me. God says, Isaiah, one day you will be consoled. Isaiah, one day. You you weep now, but Isaiah, you will not weep forever. One day I myself am going to come to you. In fact, I'm going to draw you to me. Everything's gone. Everything's ruined. But you're going to come to my banquet. You're going to come to my home on my mountain. I'm going to give you the best of everything. That I'm going to destroy your death. I'm going to swallow your death down in front of your eyes so you know I have consumed it. It is gone. And Isaiah, you can not want to be consoled all of your life, but there's going to become a day when I wipe every tear from your eye. You will be consoled like it or not. Because my love is going to conquer all of your pain. My grace is going to swallow up all of your sin. I will wipe away all the tears from all the faces. I will remove my people's disgrace from all the earth. From all the earth, this whole destroyed world, all of my people's disgrace will be removed. And Isaiah, don't talk back to me. I, the Lord, have spoken it. And that's what you'll experience. Your heart breaks now, you weep now, but every one of those tears wept for righteousness' sake in view of what this world is in the sight of God, in view of human experience and the pain and the suffering and all of the rest, the judgment and the wrath, every single tear that has fallen out of a broken heart that's broken because of the pain and misery and sorrow of this world for Christ's sake, God himself will comfort and console you for. Not a single tear will ever have fallen in vain. God himself will wipe it dry. And on that day, not one of God's children will say, do not console me, because for the first time we will will discover ourselves in the presence of the perfect consoler who actually can take it away and make it better. Not just someone who sympathizes, not just someone who empathizes, but someone who can actually change it. For the Lord has spoken.
in that day, they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in Him, and He saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in Him. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. The whole world is destroyed, but there is salvation. You can be saved. You can be okay. You can be healthy and whole. You can be nourished by God. And in that day, notice, earlier on, the right response is to have a broken heart, a body racked with pain. God called His people, weep and wail, tear out your hair, put on sackcloth, mourn. But now, with the consummation of salvation, now is the day when you're supposed to rejoice and be glad. You know, God doesn't call you to suffer forever. He calls you to, to suffer as He does to experience the joy of salvation in the end. He is my God. This is our God. We trusted Him when we couldn't, when things were so dark, we, we couldn't see one step in front of us. We just trusted God. And now we're saved. Now we see it. Now the light has dawned. Chapter 26, verse 19. Because God swallows death forever in 25, 8, 26, 19. But your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up. Shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. But your dead will live, Lord. The earth is the womb where the gestation of the resurrection body is taking place, and one day the earth is going to give birth to those who have died in the Lord. Wake up. Those of you who sleep in dust, wake up and shout for joy. Their bodies will rise. Perhaps an odd question, doesn't need to be asked though. Do you really really believe that? That, that, that those who those who are dead are going to live again? Do you really believe that those who are from dust and who have returned to dust are one day going to wake up and shout for joy? Do you, do you really believe that, that one day all those who have been buried, all the dead are going to be sort of birthed out of the earth in in resurrection life. Do you believe that? Well, well, then that changes a few things, doesn't it? All of a sudden, 
That's a big deal. Resurrection. Life after death. Death's not the end. Death's, death's not the conqueror. Death doesn't have the victory. Death isn't the, the end of the road. It's, it's, it, how can that be? It's because the Lord swallowed death forever. Now, when did he do that? Well, metaphorically in Isaiah, in terms of prophetic vision, obviously, but death isn't an object to swallow. How does God defeat death? Well, God defeats death when death swallows his son. But when death swallows his son, what death doesn't realize is that that's when death will die. In swallowing Jesus, God swallows death itself, and His Son defeats death, so that we have, as John Owen said in one of his, in his theological treaties from the 1600s, we have the death of death in the death of Christ, the death of death in the death of Christ. That's what we have. Now, my goodness, do you, so then, so then today, and I, and I realize, like, I, I, you know, tough text, and, and, you know, you, you kind of start out, on, start off on a little bit of a, of a down note, right, in terms of weeping and wailing and all the rest, but you, but you can't avoid it, and that's what the text says, and unless we're just going to be so selective that our evangelical emotions forbid us from looking at certain texts, you have to work through that. And it's probably not best to, to cultivate a canon within a canon. That is, that is we, we screen out passages. We just don't like how this makes us feel, and we don't want to do it, so we just won't, we'll just ignore them. You probably don't want to do that. So you start out in a little bit of a rough patch in this section, emotionally. But do you realize that, that part of the reason for that is so that when you get to this, the power and the grace and the love and the the enormity of it actually can wash over you a little bit. My goodness, with all of the things that really legitimately ought to break our hearts, with all of the things that, that are conducive to, to despair, and, and all the darkness, all the judgment, all the wrath, all of these things which are real, all of the suffering, all of the ways that we should be even mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically affected by them, that doesn't all go away. But, it, but it's, 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 it's all true, and we need to engage with that more than we do in our circles, and yet that doesn't mitigate or militate against the fact that God has destroyed death and there's joy in the end. But, but you get here, sometimes through a lot of pain, sometimes through a lot of hardship. You still get here, but, but here is better from having gone through all of this because it sets it in sharp relief so that you end working through God, destroying the whole world. But the point is, look, there's resurrection for those who have their trust in God. Resurrection for crying out loud. Like, like what are we talking about? Resurrection. We come to Easter, and on Good Friday, and Jesus dies on the cross, and we're so, we're so familiar with atonement. And Easter Sunday, and all we're so familiar with it. You know, the greatest thing about Easter Sunday is, you know, we have hot cross buns, and I do like those. We're still going to have them. That's not a, not a shot. But it's like, but it's like all the resurrection, we're just so familiar with it. It's the resurrection. Death is defeated by Jesus. God has swallowed death. 
Wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Well, may God help us. May God help us to balance this, this life, all that's true in it, this range of emotions, range of reality. But help us to land here, really land here, this rock-solid assurance that there is resurrection life in Jesus Christ. May He help us to get there, to get it, to live in it. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.